Welcome to Synth Stories. My name is Ronick Sethi. Every episode, we feature an artist or producer who shares their personal story with a specific hardware synth and demonstrates how they created a sound on one of their tracks using that synthesizer. Synth Stories is brought to you by Ask.audio. If you like inspiring and educational news, reviews, tutorials, and interviews for audio music production, come and visit us for daily articles at Ask Audio. And in the Ask Audio Academy, we have video courses covering topics from synthesis to songwriting, mixing and mastering to music software like Logic Pro, Ableton Live, Cubase, Pro Tools. That's www.ask.audio. My name is Chris Dirksen of Methodic Doubt, and you're listening to Synth Stories on Ask Audio. Chris Dirksen is part of Methodic Doubt and a sought-after film and TV composer with many music scoring credits, including Mad Max, Fury Road, Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, Banshee, and the most recent hit Cinemax series, Quarry. In this episode, Chris shares his creative process for scoring to picture, the origins of the Buchla music easel, and how he used it for the dark, grinding and evolving soundtrack in the critically acclaimed show, Quarry. The primary focus of Quarry is its lead character, Matt Conway, a disillusioned Vietnam vet who returns home to Memphis in 1972, where he struggles readjusting back into society. Ultimately, he's drawn into a web of contract killers, but while he's dealing with that, he's also having these PTSD-related flashbacks that tie into an alleged massacre he was involved with in Vietnam at a place called Quan Tang. We get a glimpse into these flashbacks in the pilot episode, and over the course of this season, the mysteries of Quan Tang begin to unfold. The score we hear in those moments is largely the sound of a synthesizer called the Bukla Music Easel. The funny thing is that when I started the score, I really intended to stay away from using synths. So as I drone on, you're going to hear some pieces from the score as well as some raw recordings of the Bukla. I started off composing in the world of trailer music, and I'm still very active in that via my company, Methodic Doubt Music. When my partner, Dane Short, and I started working together about 10 years ago, film, TV, and trailer music was still relatively traditional, largely using strings and taikos. We took a different approach and decided to use guitars and synths as the focus of our sound. Rather than just trying to mimic Hans Zimmer and his crew, we looked to artists like Massive Attack that we both liked and respected, and I guess you'd call them alternative composers like Clint Manzel, Cliff Martinez, John Murphy, all guys who really had their own sound and stuck to it. Synths were never really seen as acceptable as being the focus of a mainstream score. But when the social network won the Oscar and the Drive soundtrack hit at the same time, that blew the doors wide open. It's a style that's become known as hybrid, and you now pretty much hear it everywhere. Right before I started working on Quarry, I had wrapped on the final season of a little show called Banshee. The score for that show was very much hybrid and an extension of what we had been doing in the trailer world. 
At that point, you could hear the influence of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross being tempted into every TV show, every movie, every trailer. And I was starting to get a little burnt out on synth-driven scores. Both Banshee and Quarry are on a network called Cinemax, which also has another show that was being scored by Cliff Martinez called The Nick. I really love that show and how it juxtaposed a very modern sounding synth score against a period piece set in New York in the early 1900s. I was kind of burnt out on synths, but the way they did it was very unexpected and felt fresh and interesting. I also knew that Cinemax had another show called Outcast in the pipeline, and that was being scored by Atticus Ross, who I expected it would be in line with his previous work. So when it came time to start thinking about The Sound of Quarry, I wanted to find a way to set it apart from its siblings on the network and not just repeat my work on Banshee. Cinemax and the producers of Quarry really wanted to stay away from too much of a retro score. They wanted something that was fairly modern sounding and didn't lean on any cliches of the 70s. The director and showrunner, Gray Utanis, had a saying that he didn't want to get too drunk on the 70s and make the whole thing a pastiche of funky soul music and bell-bottoms. But all that being said, Memphis in 1972 was such a rich place in the history of music with Stax Records, Rail Studios, Big Star, so many others that it felt almost criminal to completely ignore that element. So with that in mind, I tried to come up with a happy medium between those two lines of thinking. And the way I worked through that was coming up with something that I thought of as a time machine approach. What would happen if you sent me back to Willie Mitchell's studio in Memphis in 1972 or Ardent where Big Star recorded and asked me to come up with a modern sounding score like Banshee that would still be relevant in 2016? Ultimately, as a musician, you always have a certain sound, regardless of what you use to create it. And I wanted to use all this old gear as sort of a filter of sorts for my sound. I wasn't going to be writing throwback-esque melodies, but I was hoping that the gear would kind of hint at the dusty, warm tones that we associate with the era without completely calling attention to itself and screaming that, you know, this is retro. So with that general concept in mind, I started digging deep into the recording techniques and instruments of the day. I already had some tape echoes and some vintage gear, but because of the deadline-driven nature of composing work, it's tough to rely on vintage gear that can potentially break down mid-project when you really need it. It's inevitably going to break down. It's really just a matter of when. But every musician loves old gear and I saw this as possibly the only time I'd really get to indulge in that in my career so I started going down the rabbit hole. I knew I really wanted to record to tape so the first thing I bought was an old tube-driven Ampex 351 tape machine. I bought Hammond organs, Rhodes, Leslie speakers, Wurlitzers, phasers, all types of outboard gear and effects that were typical of a studio of that era. 
I'm always a fan of dirty, grungy sounds, and the more I dug into Memphis, the more I realized that most of the music coming out of there had this gritty, kind of lower-fi production value relative to the cleaner stuff coming out of, say, Motown. The Memphis you see in Quarry was post-Martin Luther King's assassination, which, by all accounts, was a fairly bleak, down-on-its-luck place. I wanted the tone of the score to reflect that, and processing everything through tape and working with all this old gear that was always on the brink of distortion really helped create a very warm, murky, imperfect sound. So even though my original intent was to avoid using synths as much as I possibly could, as I delved into all of this, I realized that the early 70s was such a significant turning point in the history of synthesizers and early electronic music that I felt like I couldn't resist exploring that element. Probably the most famous of all synthesizers, the Mini Moog, came out in 1970. The ARP 2600 came out in 71, and the Synthy A came out around the same time. Prior to that, synths were mostly these massive modular rigs. Some of them were the size of a house and as big as a wall. So when these smaller, more portable, more affordable synths like the Minimoog came out, it put synthesis in the hands of a lot more musicians. Well, Bob Moog and his Minimoog generally get most of the attention when people talk about the synths of that era an equally creative guy named Don Bukla was on the West Coast making his own unique instruments with his own more left-field approach to synthesis. I'm not going to get too deep into Don's history, but I believe the origin of his instruments started via his relationship with the composer Morton Subotnik and the San Francisco Tape Music Center. They started working together in the 60s, and the fundamental idea behind these instruments was searching for a new, more experimental, non-traditional way to create music. This manifested itself in a number of ways. Many of Don's early machines didn't have keyboards, which pushed you away from relying on the standard 12-note scale and encouraged experimentation with the sound of the machine. Whereas the Mini Moog, for instance, fit neatly into a traditional band or melodic musical context, booklas were not originally conceived as a performance instrument. Don even hesitated to call his machines synthesizers, because that word implied that they were meant to say synthesize a sound such as a flute or try and sound like a stringed instrument, which was never really the goal. His ideas and designs were very forward-looking and usually stood in contrast to most of his contemporaries. As a result of Bukla's association with artists like Suzanne Ciani and Morton Sobotnik's experimental project Silver Apples of the Moon, Bukla's are very much associated with what I think of as the bleeps and bloops camp in the synth world rather than traditional melodic playing. I'm always looking for unique, unconventional instruments in my work, and I'd always been a fan of booklas and modular synths in general, but I'd always hesitated to jump into that world because I struggled with the question of how I would make that work within the musical context of what I did. 
composing work is very deadline-driven, so there's always the practical side of my brain looking for tools that will help me get from the idea stage to having a finished work as quickly as possible, which oftentimes can be a matter of hours. There's not a lot of time for experimentation, so although I lusted after a bookla, it never really felt like an option to incorporate one into my setup. Add in the fact that vintage booklas were very rare and expensive, and Don's new creations like the 200E were something in the $20,000 per instrument range, it was always a case of admiration from a distance. One of those machines was released in 1972. It was a smaller, more portable version of his larger modular synths, and it was called the Bukla Music Easel, or Electric Music Box. It had a keyboard and seemed a little more performance-oriented to me than some of his larger modular creations. Modern Bukla master Alessandro Cortini's beautiful melodic work with a vintage easel had really opened up my eyes to the possibilities of using a Bukla in a very musical way that I really hadn't heard previously. But again, I believe there were only 14 or 15 of the original easels ever made, so they were pretty much unattainable. The Bukla recordings I heard up to that point always had a warmth and rich organic tone that I had always sought out in synths, but never really felt like I was able to find. Five to ten years ago, the synth renaissance that we're seeing today hadn't really reached the point it is at now. Options were much more limited, and I'd resigned myself to the fact that I would probably never own one. Lo and behold, in 2013, the easel was reissued, and it gave me an opportunity to dive into the Bukla world. So after a year on the waiting list, my easel finally arrived. I was working on the score to Banshee at the time and tried to incorporate it into my work on the show, but I kept struggling to find a way to do so. I would try and use it in the context of a score cue, for instance, adding a bass line or some sort of melodic part, and it was never really that quick and easy to use in that way. The tuning was always slightly off, the MIDI was sketchy at best, so... After a while I kind of gave up in terms of trying to incorporate it into my score work. In retrospect, I realized that I was approaching the instrument in completely the wrong way and trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. The whole point of Don's designs is to push you in a different way of approaching music. A sequencer, for example, is five steps instead of the standard four or eight. Even the basic architecture of the synth can be confusing at first with everything laid out in mirrors and circles in a very non-linear way. So, after some initially frustrating experiences with the easel, I started to understand the thinking behind it, and my own expectations began to adjust accordingly. The machine really has a mind of its own, and as much as I tried to lead it where I wanted to go, it always ended up leading me instead. 
To be honest, I'm not the most advanced synthesist in the world, and many times I'll come back to the easel having slightly forgotten the whole architecture of the synth and how it works. So a lot of my relationship with it really involves randomly and ignorantly moving sliders and knobs and seeing where the machine takes me. Once I realized that I was the passenger and not the driver, my relationship with the easel changed for the better. So when it came time to work on the score to quarry, instead of trying to harness it, I let it take me where it wanted to go. We had the luxury of a bit of time to plan an experiment before I started working on the show, so initially I locked myself in the room with the bookla, pressed record, and sampled everything that came out of it. Some of those sounds were manipulated with tape effects or pedals like an old maestro phaser that was designed by Tom Oberheim. But overall, there was not much processing done to the easel's raw sounds. At times I'm experimenting with feedback and it's not always clear that what you're hearing is the sound of a synth. I shared a lot of these initial recordings with the show's editors so they had a pool of music and sounds to experiment with while cutting the episodes. One of the main thematic elements in the show was Mac's struggle with PTSD and the score you hear under those moments is largely that of the music easel. Just the raw chaotic sounds that came out of that machine were really helpful in conveying the chaos that was building in Mac's head throughout the story. So, having started the show in a somewhat anti-synth state of mind, the easel ended up finding a place in almost every piece of music I created for the show. In the end, it turned out to be possibly the most crucial piece of gear instrument that I used in Quarry. And it definitely turned out to be the most inspiring. Thank you to Chris Dirksen for explaining his studio secrets, his creative process, and painting a picture of how he used the Buchler music easel for the Cinemax Quarry TV series soundtrack. You can watch all episodes of Quarry via Cinemax.com in the US, and it should be arriving soon in the UK and in Europe, and UK on Sky. Find out more about Chris Dirksen on ChrisDirksen.com, that's K-R-I-S, D-I-R-K-S-E-N dot com Here's some music from Quarry made with the Buchler music easel for you to enjoy and thank you for listening to Synth Stories on Ask Audio <laughs>